Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. We're going to, obviously, we're continuing through the book of Nehemiah. However, next week we have the Word of Life singers. So I won't be up here preaching. And then the following week is uh, Sunrise Service and uh, uh, Resurrection Sunday. So that's going to be, uh, I believe, uh, Psalms 22. We're going to look at Psalms 22 for Easter. By the way, I have a little bit of a cold, so I'm going to be doing something that speakers shouldn't have in their mouth, and that is a cough drop, but I think you'd probably prefer that over me coughing. Um, But anyways, so today will be Nehemiah 5, just a piece of it, and then we'll start, we'll continue on with that on the 27th of April, a couple weeks from now, three weeks from now. As you know, we've been going through the book of Nehemiah, the first chapter was where he found out the need Chapter 1, he started praying. A few months later, he approaches the king, and the king of Persia allows him to go from Susa to uh, Jerusalem. He shows up in Jerusalem, in chapter 3, he starts to build. When I say he starts to build, he he sections off the wall into about 40 parts. Those are the leaders. The groups of Jews are going to then be working on, on a specific part of the building project as far as rebuilding of the wall. Then we get to chapter 4. What do we find out there? Opposition. Whenever God does something, whenever God does something, there'll be opposition. You can say it that way. Again, ridicule, threats. Last week we looked at discouragement. The point is this. It was opposition from without, outside. It wasn't from within. Today we look at opposition from within. Opposition from within. And you've got to ask the question, what is harder? Opposition from out or from within? You can even say it from a church point of view. What is harder to deal with? Again, are there pressures on the church from without? Yeah, the government is putting a lot more pressure now than 25 years ago. You have all these case cases. Uh, case uh, in court, uh, court cases. Um, <laughs> by the way, my mind is, is not as sharp as it normally is. Help <laughs> me out here. I love it when I'm struggling and you throw me a rock. <laughs> I would say this, though, in the short. It's harder to deal with within. You expect it from without. You expect it when it comes to a godly source, don't you? By the way, you do understand that we don't live in a Christian nation. We never did. We we were guided by a lot more Christian principles at one time than we are now, but we never were an actual Christian nation. Christian is people. People who have submitted to the Lordship of Christ and have recognized their sin and repented of their sin and put their faith and trust in what Christ did on the cross. And believed on him as the only salvation. Those are Christians, right? That's people. A lot of times, people make up a nation that has Christian principle. I I like to listen periodically because we play pickleball at 10 o'clock on Saturday. And then at 11 o'clock, I'm driving home usually. And I I like listening to WLEA. And and WLEA usually has this old-time westerns. Jimmy Stewart. You know who Jimmy Stewart is? But what was interesting yesterday as I was going home is they had an advertisement 
from scene one to scene two, you know, an advertisement, and they play the old advertisements. And the old advertisement was this, like to, to the general public. Now, you need to be finding basically a, a place to worship tomorrow. Because without moral, morals and God, we will not be able to endure what our nation has to endure. You need to get out to church and listen to your pastor, priest, or rabbi. That's what they said. I'm like, wow. Public radio, 19, what, 40s probably it was. They were telling people, you better get out to church. You better listen to what the pastor says because you need God and morals. Well, sometimes we forget that. And as a nation, we're moving away from that very quickly. But let me just say this. When it comes to the Jews, they're working on the wall, but now they have opposition. They've already had opposition from without. Sanballat, Tobiah, again, threats and discouragement and ridicule and everything that went along with it. Now you're going to see how Nehemiah dealt with threats from within. Okay, chapter 5, verse 1. Let's just read the uh, verse, first few verses. Now there arose a great outcry of the people. And of their wives. By the way, that's important. Because the women weren't supposed to speak. When it got to the point where they're speaking, it's really bad. I mean that seriously. I mean, he emphasizes of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax. Even they have king's tax on uh, fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children is our, as are their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. Question is, how does... Nehemiah deal with the opposition. And the opposition, again, and we'll see this in a moment, a little bit deeper, but basically he had the Jewish poor and the rich poor. And the rich poor were taking advantage of the, of the Jewish, excuse me, the rich, the Jewish rich were taking advantage of the Jewish poor. This might be a long sermon. <laughs> the question is this, how did Nehemiah deal with it? Or how does a leader deal with opposition? Well, John White, in his study on excellence and leadership, writes this. No test of leadership is more revealing than the test of opposition. Yeah, that's true. When everything's going fine, it's one thing. But when there's opposition, Christian leaders can go to pieces under such pressure. Some grow too discouraged to continue. Others build walls around themselves and shoot murderously from behind them. They become embattled, embittered, and vindictive. Not so Nehemiah. Nowhere does his leadership shine more brilliantly than in his handling of the opposition. And it might be because he understood what that cartoon character Pogo, do you know what I'm talking about Pogo? That was a number of years ago. But he had a, there was a book, it's the actual title of the book. It says, the book's title is this, We Have Met the Enemy and He is Us. Sometimes the enemy is us. Within, flesh, but also among. And so, Nehemiah's greatness, and I'm going to say that in the right sense, is seeing how he deals with opposition. Sanballat, Tobiah, now how is he going to deal with the Jewish nobles, the rich people? 
Is he going to kowtow to them or what? How is he going to deal with them? Now again, they were exploiting the poor. Uh, Roman numeral 2 on your outline says, the complaint of the poor. There's a great outcry. And basically you can split up these people. By the way, you can see this because it says this. For there were those, verse 2, verse, uh, verse 4, and there were those. And I think verse 3 says, and there were those also. So 2, 3, and 4. Uh, it says, and there were those. In other words, like these categories. So he's kind of categorizing. By the way, they all were farmers, but they found themselves in different situations. See, the first group, verse 2, <coughs> were the laborers who, is, who have used up their resources. With our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. I mean, it's a life and death situation. But apparently, verse 2 are not people that own land. They were day laborers. Verse 3 were farmers. It says, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses to get grain because of the famine. So there's poverty, there's famine. There are people who are day laborers. They, they had no food. Now there are people who had uh, land, <coughs> but they were mortgaging it. Just for food, just for the taxes. Well, actually, the taxes is, is the third group, verse 4. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax. King being king of Persia. On our fields, in our vineyards. And do you see the plight? There's famine. There's taxes to be paid. I can't pay my taxes. And it's getting really, really bad. And the, and the, and the reality is, is I need the money, so now I'm willing to mortgage my house, my fields, my vineyards. But it gets really bad, verse 4. And isn't our flesh as the the flesh of them? In other words, these Jewish brothers that are rich, I mean, these are Jews. Our children as their children. And yet, our sons and our daughters need to be slaves. In fact, some of our daughters have already been enslaved. I mean, do you see how, what the plight is? John MacArthur, in his uh, commentary, just in the Bible, said this. On the top of this, these complaints uh, against the terrible exploitation and ex- extortion by the rich Jews who would not help but force people to sell their homes and their children while having no ability to redeem them back. Under normal conditions, the law, the Mosaic law, offered the hope of releasing these young people through the remission of debts which occurred every seven years. See, every seven years they were supposed to... Um, uh, the release of the land, release of even the person. Or in the 50th year of the year of Jubilee, the custom of redemption made it possible to buy back <coughs> the enslaved individual at almost any time. But the desperate financial situation of these times made that appear impossible. I mean, I, I can't imagine. I was thinking about this all week. I can't imagine being in such straits, financial straits, that I have to sell Cody. I'm laughing, but can you imagine that? Can you imagine being in such financial straits that your own children have to be sold? Which, by the way, does happen in third world countries. So, this is, you know, and the rich are able to capitalize. I, I think of the carpetbaggers of the of the Civil War, you know, carpetbaggers using Yankees from the north, capitalizing on all the destruction that happened in the south. The south needed certain um, uh, uh, commodities, and they were able to offer, and, and they basically capitalized on, 
on the, the hurt of the South. It's no wonder the South, even to this day, hate a lot of uh, Yankees, right? I mean, of some of the things that the Yankees did, the Northern people did to the South. Uh, and, and I'm not here for a political speech, but the point is, is, boy, when you're taken advantage of, there's a lot of anger, a lot of anger in the soul. So when, when you see in verse 1, there was a great outcry. Understand, it was a great outcry. Because these rich, these rich nobles were like vultures hovering over a carcass. So let's see what his response is. Well, you see that in verse 6. By the way, Louis uh, Castles apparently is a columnist that wrote this. This was a few years ago, but he was in the, um, I think it was the L.A. Times. No, Dallas Morning News. He wrote this, and he was, he was talking about the, the conscience of the nation. But he wrote this. He said, quote, The hardest moral duty of our time is for men and women, for women to keep on caring. Now, this was written back in 1972. So what was that, 30, 40 years ago, right? 40 years ago? 40 years ago, he was saying, you know what's really hard in America? Keep on caring, just to care. We have, quote, compassion fatigue, end quote. Not been, and you say, well, what do you mean, compassion fatigue? It, it's hard for us to muster sympathy. <laughs> and, and you know what? 40 years later, I think we're still in that point, aren't we? Isn't it hard with all the stuff that you see on the, you know, you hear on the radio, you see on the TV, you watch on the internet, whatever. Uh, compassion fatigue. You just get tired of, of all the needs that are out there, all the tragedy that is out there, all the, the flood victims, all the earthquakes, the poverty, the, the political victims, just victims in general. Isn't it hard at times? I mean, I find it hard. It's hard to weep with those who weep. It's just too much. It's like overwhelming. That's, that's been one of the... The actually bad things about so much media, you just keep getting hit with all this, this, uh, these problems, and there's a tendency to have compassion fatigue. But he goes on and he says this, even worse than compassion fatigue, says Castle, is, quote, indignation fatigue. Indigna- indignation fatigue. Which means having lost the capacity to get mad at sin. And wrongdoing, uh, lying, cheating, sensuality, immoral, uh, immorality. Yeah, we have a problem with compassion fatigue, but maybe as Christians we have a problem with indignation fatigue. We don't get, we don't get mad at sin anymore. In fact, maybe what we do is actually get entertained by it. We might even laugh at it. It might be part of our normal entertainment schedule. We shrug it off. We laugh at it. He ends by saying that someone seems to have administered a massive dose of Novocaine to our national conscience. End quote. Well, we don't find Nehemiah, and I'll say it this way, righteous Nehemiah falling into that problem. He didn't have indignation fatigue. When he heard about this, this horrendous, Practice of the nobles, of the rich people. Look at what he said in verse 6. I was very angry. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. Very, exceedingly, furious, hot, like boiling. One commentator said this. What the ridiculed threats and accompanying discouragement from the enemy, 
Sanballat and Tobiah, had failed to do the injustices from the rich Jews accomplished. In other words, you don't see Nehemiah getting angry with all the stuff that Sanballat and Tobiah was, was trying to accomplish. But when he found out that his Jewish brothers were taking advantage of the poor, Jewish brothers, I was very angry. You know, there's a few questions we should ask or um, just make statements on. The first one is this, that anger is not always sinful. See, sometimes when you read that immediately, you say, oh, it's wrong. <coughs> well, he, he, was, he was unrighteous at that point. No, no. By the way, was Wilberforce centuries ago, was he wrong in being enraged against the gross evils of slavery in the British Empire? Was he wrong at... No, he should have had that reaction. What was sad is all the people that didn't. There was another guy, Lord Shaftesbury. He was indignant over the exploitation of women and children in the factories and the mines. He was... Should he have been? By the way, I wonder if 100 years from now, hopefully by then, well, we'll be in glory if you're a believer, <laughs> but even if they record American history and, God, and the Lord hasn't come back yet, if, if, if we'll look back or they'll look back and say, you know, that was a generation that wasn't indignant over sin. Oh, sure. You can accept it from the unbeliever, the one that doesn't have Christ, but <laughs> Christians, Christians who were entertained and laughed at sin. I, I believe a part of our character is shown in how we respond to sin. You get indignant over it. But again, anger is not always sinful. We should have anger. Again, what they were, what, the point here was they were getting interest. And we're going to see this in the next, this week and next. It was interest, but it was also usury. See, in other words, they were... They were lending money at an interest rate, which the Jewish law, Old Testament law, said no. You can lend to your brother, but you don't charge them interest if it's Jew to Jew. But also usury. Usury was even worse than that. That's where, like, I'm going to give you $1,000, but at the end of this year, you've got to give me 1500 It was like, you know, 50% interest rate. Which meant the person could never get out of it. Once they got, um, you know, got caught, then they never get out of that system. They would always be a slave for the rest of their life. God hates that. You take advantage, you exploit, you don't love your brother. God hates that. And Nehemiah did too. Again, anger is not always sinful. Uh, my soul was telling me of a... Of a my son Cody, the one I might have to sell someday. Uh, no, no. He was, he was talking to the junior, I think junior church kids. He was teaching them a lesson and basically trying to show them that you should get angry at times. And like, um, you know, little kids, like he said, you know, like if your friend was like, you know, being laughed at and scoffed, should you get angry at that? And they were like, you know, because again, what's our thinking? You know? No. Well, he said, well, well, listen, what if your friend, you know, what if your friend was, was being beaten up by someone else? Should you get angry at that? No. <laughs> See, we think that anger is always wrong, but yet there's a righteous anger. In fact, Psalm 7 verse 11 says, God is a just judge. 
And God is angry with the wicked every day. We forget that. God is a God of love and grace and mercy, but he's also a God of wrath. Mark 3 verse 5. This is when Jesus healed the the, the man with the withered hand, but he did it on the Sabbath. And they were trying to catch him. The, uh, I believe it was the Pharisees at that point. And it says, he looked around at them with anger. This is Jesus. He's talking about Jesus Christ. With anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. A righteous man gets angry at sin, just like God does. So we're commanded to be angry. Do you know that? Ephesians 4.26 says this, Be angry, that's in the imperative, that's in the present tense. We should be angry at sin, but then it says, and do not sin. Be angry, don't sin. Be angry, don't sin. Be angry. There should be certain things that make me angry. That has to do with things that are against God's, God's law. So what is anger? Well, it's actually, there's two words, two Greek words. One is orge. Orge means passion or the word energy. By the way, a lot of these notes right here come from um, uh, Faith Baptist Counseling Ministries out in Lafayette. But I think they've hit it right on the... That anger is energy, it's passion. The other word for uh, anger is the word thumas. Thumas. It just means passion. It can be negative or positive, but it's, it's that boiling. Sometimes it's positive. <laughs> you can have passion for a person. It can be positive or it can be negative. But this, was, this, was the, um, this is how they did a, a definition of anger. A good working definition is this quote. Anger is, quote, a God-given emotion, energy, i.e. energy, to help me solve problems biblically. Now, why do I say all that? Because that's what's going to happen with Nehemiah. See, he wasn't just like this, milk toast, you know, lackadaisical, yeah, yeah, I know there's a problem, you know, the, the rich people shouldn't be doing that. Stop doing that. You know? No, no. I was very angry. Even a allows Ezra to write this in his memoirs. I was very angry. What do you mean? What do you mean, Nehemiah? I mean, I had a lot of emotion on this. I was indignant. And therefore, there was a lot of energy to solve the problem. Again, anger is God-given emotion, i.e. energy, to help me solve problems biblically. Do you think Paul had anger when he confronted Cephas or Peter? When, and it says in Galatians 2.11, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Do you think he had anger in his heart? You better believe it. He was, Peter was about ready to compromise the gospel in the way that he, he dealt with the Jews and the Gentiles. There was energy there. Do you think Jesus had anger when it says he drove out of the temple the money changers? Let me read for you John 2. It says, verse 15, when, when he had made a whip of cords. Now, that's very important. Now, think about this. 
Jesus Christ, when he drove the money changers out, by the way, he did that in the beginning and the end of his ministry. He didn't like go off, you know, like he wasn't just like, you know, out of control. It said he made a whip of cords. It, that took time. What that tells you is, okay, he was, com- obviously you know this already, he was completely under control. He was completely, he made a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. So it wasn't just the people, the sheep and the oxen as well. And poured out the money, or the changers' money, and overturned, uh, overturned the tables. Made the whip. Got the people out, got the oxen out threw over the tables, and you say, but wasn't that sinful? I thought he was perfect. No, that was righteous anger. That was energy to solve the problem. There there was a problem to be solved. In that particular case, they were making money off of, off of, of God's worship, really. So, what is anger? It's, it's energy to help me solve problems biblically. There should be anger. You see licentiousness, or you see sensuality, or you see immorality, or you see lying and deception. Whether it's in the political scene, in the entertainment scene, whatever it might be. They should like, whoa, there should be an anger. Otherwise, actually what you're doing is grieving the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit, by the way, is what? Holy. (laughs) And he is in your heart, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And we need to be holy, and we need to think holy, and we need to act holy. Number three, when does anger become sinful? So we, need, we know that there's a righteous anger, we've been talking about it, but there's also, obviously, many times an unrighteous anger. In fact, probably most of the time when you think of anger, you think of it as unrighteous. Well, one is when it is selfishly motivated, when it is selfishly motivated. You know, anger gets sinful when it's, I want my way, I deserve it, it's my right. And if you don't give it to me, I'm going to take revenge. In other words, you're making me angry. By the way, I'm, I'm going to read just verse 16 of that passage where Jesus is uh, in the temple. And he said this, or they remembered him saying this. It says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. See, he wasn't motivated selfishly. He was motivated for the glory of God. You can know whether or not your anger is is wrong if it's selfishly motivated. Is it because I want something and you're not giving it to me and therefore I'm angry? Or is it really because of God's glory? Is it really for God's purposes, God's people, God's plan? I like... Well, let me just read verse 17. (coughs) John... 217, uh, the next verse, it says, Then his disciples remembered that it was written, quote, zeal for your house has eaten me up. It was zeal for his house. It was Christ's zeal for the Father's house, the temple. That's why he responded the way he does. I, I trust that we respond the way we do to situations, people, because of not selfish motivation, but because of what, because what is, what is, what was, what is God's purpose, Okay. Proverbs 19, verse 11 says this, Good sense makes one slow to anger. Now, there, I think the anger could either be righteous or unrighteous, but the point is this, good sense makes one slow to it. Even righteous anger. 
Make sure that it really should be opposed. Sometimes we jump at the gun, you know, jump, jump the gun when it comes to even a person. We watch a person and we, do you ever do this? Impose motivation on their action when you don't know? And so you assume, well, they did that out of selfishness or they did that because. So Proverbs 19.11 is good for us. Good sense makes one slow to anger and it is the glory, it is his glory to overlook an offense. Sometimes we get angry because of the offense and, and yet, what does scripture say? <clears throat> love, what? Love covers. Love covers. See, it's, if I get angry, it's not because, I hope it's not because you hurt me. You dishonored Father. Right? But it's not about me. It's not about us. It's about the Father, His will. So again, selfishly motivated or God's goal. We've been talking about that. In other words, you know, whatever we do, word or deed, do all what? For the glory of God? So... When God's goal in the matter is distorted. And, and finally, we get angry sinfully when we attack the person instead of the problem. Attacking the person. It's real easy to attack the person, not the problem. The energy should be used to attack the problem. But we have a tendency to want to attack the person, right? Isn't that true? Wouldn't you love to take back some of that? I always like how uh, speech is referred to like toothpaste. Once you squared it out of the tube, can't get, you know, it's very hard to get it back in. That's how speech is. You blurt it out, and then you, as soon as you're doing it, and you're like, I wish I could take that back. <laughs> right? By the way, let me say, we are all fellow strugglers in this. You know, but know this, that if you attack the person and not the problem, you know, you're blowing up. Oh, by the way, anger can also be shown in clamming up. (laughs) Oh, it's there. It's just like the volcano that's ready to burst, but not at the moment. But that's why Ephesians 4 is so important. Rather speak the truth in love. If you speak it in love, you are now talking to the person, but you're talking to the person to seek to solve the problem, not to destroy the person. And that's what he does, by the way. If you watch, and we won't get to it today because of time, but when it's all said and done, these rich Jews are part of the program again. He doesn't isolate them. You sinned. You shouldn't even be here. He brings them right back into the family. That's how it should always be. So as he confronts, he does it biblically, he attacks the problem, not the person. And when it's finally, the solution is given, they're part of the project again. They're part of Jerusalem. Hey, in fact, what they say is, you know what? We'll give them the money back, we'll give everything back, and we're going to do it today. That's how repentance should look. In fact, let me give you the second part of Ephesians 4, verse 29. This is how we should speak to one another. Let no rotten word or unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification. That's building up. I should only speak, speak words that build you up according to the need of the moment. I love that. Because some of us spout. We just keep talking. And you know what the Bible says? Just give the word that's the need of the moment. By the way, that is what's so great about God. He is is sovereign 
and he is patient. I always think to myself, Lord, I am so thankful that when I got saved, what was I, 13, I guess it was, that you didn't do this to me. Oh, and by the way, John, uh, the whole purpose of you getting saved is to become formed to my, you know, the image of my son. And in the next 35 years or 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, this is the list of sins that I'm going to work on you. You know, these are the sins that you're going to have to deal with in the next 50 years. Wow. Talk about weight. So when we go to a person, the need of the moment. You know what? This is the specific sin that needs to be taken care of. That's what Nehemiah did. He just addressed that one sin of usury. By the way, he could have addressed a lot of other things. If you have, if you have that sin of usury, it's because they were selfish. They were self-sufficient. They were greedy. They weren't contented. There was a lot of things he could talk about. He just dealt with the one thing, the need of the moment. have to deal with this need of the moment. Let me read the rest of verse 29. That it might impart grace to those who hear. Yeah, our speech should be out of love because we want to impart grace for the need of the moment in the person's life. And so he's angry. He's got energy. He's going to approach it. But again, we're, 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 you know, I, I've kind of taken a rabbit trail here and saying, listen, anger can be righteous. Anger is energy to solve the problem. And let's make sure that if we are angry, it's not unrighteous anger. Make sure it's not selfishly motivated. Let's make sure that if we do get angry, it's because it's righteous and we want to solve the problem. And that's what you're going to see uh, next time we get in this passage is that he attacks the problem let's not let's make sure we're not like proverbs 29 verse 11 it says a fool vents all his feelings you ever been there a fool vents all his feelings but a wise man holds holds them back no i don't uh let me call a spade a spade no <laughs> let's back this up let's just say the need of the moment in fact even a fool is counted wise when he holds his tongue, I think Proverbs says, right? Just hold your tongue. Just hold your tongue. That's right here. So again, he doesn't vent all his feelings. So, first of all, the first thing he does is he expressed righteous anger. Number two, he consulted with himself. It says, verse 7, I took counsel with myself. New King James says, after serious thought... And and what he's getting at is, and I find this very uh, instructive, that when he got angry, what did it say next thing? I consulted with myself. (laughs) It almost sounds psychotic. (laughs) No, what he's thinking, he's thinking about things. He's he's checking his heart. He didn't want to be hasty in his reaction. He didn't want to have a snap judgment because sometimes that only intensifies the problem. This is a huge problem. There's this wall going up. Halfway up, and now all of a sudden he finds out there's internal strife, huge internal strife. He finds out about it. He gets angry. What does he do? He steps back. He says, I had, basically, I, I, st- I really thought about this long and hard. Very, very wise man. Proverbs fifteen twenty eight says this, The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. The word pours out means to cause to bubble or it literally more, I mean, if you want to have a word picture, to belch. In other words, the mouth of the wicked just belches out evil. 
you got to kind of picture this, you know. Thanksgiving meal, really good. How gross is that? Get away from the table. I, I say those words because I think sometimes that, that's how the wicked is looked at. The way they use speech, it's not edifying. It doesn't build up. It's, it's not controlled. It's not self-controlled. They just belch it out. No. He didn't do any of that. He took serious thought. He analyzed. He evaluated. I gave you three things in your notes. What did he do? I think, first of all, he prepared his own heart. I got this from the book, uh, Instruments in a Redeemer's Hand. When, you go, if you, when you're going to go to confront someone, and that's what we're really talking about in this whole chapter 5, the first part of chapter 5, is, is how do you approach someone? First of all, before you ever approach the person, you need to evaluate yourself. You need to prepare your heart. Paul uh, Tripp says this, Before approaching another person about their sin, we must first begin by, quote, examining our own hearts. Are there thoughts or motives or attitudes, like negative attitudes such as self-righteousness or anger, unrighteous anger or bitterness or spirit of condemnation or vengeance or, you know what, I've got the uh, spiritual gift of being critical. (laughs) See, are, are any of those attitudes in my heart that would get in the way of what God intends to do? As instruments of Christ's grace, and I want you to hear that. This is what we are called to do as believers, right? As instruments of God's grace, or Christ's grace, we must confess that we need that grace just as much as the people we are helping. And would to God that I would have done that every time I had to confront someone. Prepare my heart, and you know what? I'm in, just as, I'm in desperate need of the grace that I'm also trying to extend to you. We need God to provide the love, courage, compassion, and wisdom you will need to represent, to, to represent him well. We need those ourselves. So I believe what, what Nehemiah is doing is he's preparing his own heart first. By the way, if you don't prepare your own heart, then, then a lot of other negative things come out, right? I mean, we find ourselves then condemning You'll find yourself confronting with the attitude, I have to win. It becomes about you. You no longer become the conduit for God's grace. You just become, you're the messenger, but you better listen because this is my message. No, no, it's not your message. It's God's message. See, when you, can, when you prepare your heart, you don't get angry. You don't get sinfully angry if the person doesn't agree with you. Because it doesn't become personal. It doesn't become adversarial. Do you see all those things? Sometimes, have you ever approached the person and it's personal, adversarial, it's about you? And if they say no, then it's like you've been rejected. No, I'm not, it's not about me. I'm not even here. I'm just, I'm just the conduit. I think that's what was going through Nehemiah's heart. The first thing is he prepared his own heart. The second thing is I think he was determining the necessity and his right to judge. In other words... You know, there's this thing in Christianity now that says, you know, judge not lest you be judged. Matthew, Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not lest you be judged. And they, people never read the verses 2 to 5. But let me read them for you. For with the judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you back. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and you don't consider the plank, or as Tim Lane would say, the telephone pole that's in your own eye? 
Or can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. I'm going to use the word stage player, because that's what a hypocrite was. One who was on the stage, you know, play acting. It's kind of like the one, uh, the guy from Gladiator who got beat up by a woman. From what I, you know, he's a stage player. What are you talking about? You're a gladiator. You're not supposed to be hit by a woman. I don't know why I brought that up. By the way, don't go to Noah. On the basis of my uh, associate, Ken Shutt, he went, why did he go? But anyways, he went. <laughs> no, I'm glad he did. I'm glad he did. It's just, it, don't. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own. It don't because it's unbiblical, that's why. You're wasting your money, you're wasting your time. I'll meet you there tonight, no. <laughs> no, I'm not going, I'm not going. <laughs> okay, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brothers. I think the second part of preparing your heart is he's saying, listen, is it right to judge? Absolutely, Matthew says it. It just says don't judge like a hypocrite. You don't go to someone else pointing out their sin when they could say, well, but look at all your sins that you haven't dealt with. Well, I know, but I'm here on God. I'm God's ambassador. No, take care of your own sin first. And then thirdly, to understand God's thinking for the situation. Because look at the second part of verse 7. I brought charges against. And I think at that point, he stepped back, evaluated his heart, evaluated the the right to, to judge, made sure that he didn't have any telephone beams in his own eye, in his, or telephone poles in his own eye. In other words, is he seeing clearly? But then I think he was also setting it up like, okay, what does, let's say Exodus twenty two twenty five say? And we'll see that in a moment. But what, you know what it says? You can lend to your brother, but never with interest. It says it in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. You can lend, but not with interest. Never usury. So he was preparing his heart. That was his response. He consulted with himself. And then thirdly, and this is where we're going to have to close it down for the day, so we're not going to get through the whole outline. Number three, he confronted the nobles and the officials without partiality and lovingly. Those two things. Again, it says, verse 7, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. Now, by the way, That is a stretch. That is a fearful thing. He is now in the city. He needs their help. And now he's confronting the very source of the people that he needs to be on his side. But he does it impartially. doesn't show partiality just because they're rich. Like Leviticus 19 verse 15 says, You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Don't, Don't defer to the great. Well, yeah, but he's one of the top givers of our church. We certainly can't confront him. Sometimes we get into that, right? Hopefully, we never have, but I'm saying church in America. So let me close today with this, just a few, uh, last two thoughts on confrontation, okay? Confrontation. Why we should confront, and I'm just, two very simple things. First of all, we should confront because it is rooted in a submission to the first great commandment, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with what? All thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. If I was to go and to confront someone, because that's what Nehemiah is going to do, he's going to confront the nobles. It's not because I'm ticked, you've hurt me, all unrighteous stuff. It's because of 
Love for God. Love for God. That's why Nehemiah goes. We confront because in submission to God, we are his ambassador. We are his representative. We're his conduit. That's why I would go and make an appeal to a person. Again, this comes from instruments in a redeemer's hand. Quote, from God's perspective, the only reason we the only reason we confront one another is that we love the Lord and want to obey him. He goes on, our failure to confront one another biblically must be seen for what it is, something rooted in our tendency to run after God replacements. See, that's our failure. When we don't confront, it's because we've put something other than God in his rightful place, a God replacement. We confront unbiblically or not at all because we love something else more than God. Perhaps we love the relationship with this person so much that we don't want to risk it. Don't want to risk a relationship. Perhaps we don't confront because we prefer to avoid the personal sacrifice and the complications that confrontation may involve. And it does. Sometimes you confront and the relationships go south or it takes energy, it takes perspective. He ends with this. He says, perhaps we love peace, respect, and appreciation more than we should. That's why we don't confront. So here's the principle. To the degree that we give the love of our hearts to someone or something else, to that degree we lose our primary motive to confront. But if we love God above all else, confrontation is an extension and an expression of that love. End quote. Why did Nehemiah go to those nobles? Or why will you see him go? <coughs> love for God. Love for God. And number two, we confront because it is rooted in the second commandment. Not only the first, but the second. That's the second motivation. What? And the second is like to that. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, does the word confrontation confront really? I don't want to confront. How about the word rebuke? Does that sound harsh? I'm going to rebuke. They have a really good definition for rebuke. Quote, to bring truth where a change is needed. Isn't that a great definition? To bring truth where a change is needed. You don't have to use the word rebuke. That's what you're doing. To bring truth where a change is needed. See, some of you know people that need truth where a change is needed, and you're not willing to do it. You're not willing to do it because you have a God replacement. You're not willing to do it because it might sacrifice a relationship. I couldn't tell them anything. A rebuke, a rebuke free of unrighteous anger is a clear sign of biblical love. But I'm afraid we have replaced love in our relationships with being nice. See, we live in a tolerant, polite society. We convince ourselves that we are not speaking because we love the other person when in reality we fail to speak because we lack love. True love is not offensively intrusive or rude. I want to emphasize that. It's not offensively intrusive or rude. It doesn't cover sin with a facade of silence though. Those who truly love will speak even if it creates intense upsetting moments. 
If we love people and want God's best for them, how can we stand by as they wander away? How can we let them deceive themselves with excuses and blame and rationalization? How can we watch them get more and more enslaved by the fleeting pleasures of sin? How can we let a suffering sufferer <laughs> respond that way to his experiences? In other words, he's just going down deeper. True love is neither idle nor timid. It is other-centered and active. And I just, I plead with you. I really do. Is there someone in your life that the Lord keeps knocking and you say, no, I don't want to deal with that one. The truth is that we fail to confront, not because we love others too much, but because we love ourselves too much. We fear others misunderstanding us or being angry with us. We are afraid of what others will think. We don't want to endure the hardship of honesty because we love ourselves more than we love our neighbors. Yet we know that the depth of love in a relationship can be judged by the degree of honesty that exists. So therefore, the second reason we would confront, the second reason we would bring truth to a needed situation is because we love our neighbor as ourselves. right? Loving God, loving neighbor. That's why we would do it. That's why Nehemiah did it. He did it out of love for God and he did it also out of love for those, not only the poor, but the rich. Because when they reconciled, when they repented, they were brought back into the, the family, as it were, the Jewish family right there. Now, I've, I've just had this happen. I want to share, and then we'll close. Illustration. Um, my grand died a few, a few weeks ago. You know that. What I started finding out is, as I was talking to my grandfather, this happened two, three years ago, I could tell there was anger. There was this whole set of emotions and unbiblical thinking that was going on. And this was a good test case for me because whereas sometimes I'm very direct with a person, this is my 80-some-year-old grandfather. See, I needed to confront him, but the problem was he's my 80-some-year-old grandfather. So what I did is as I'm listening to him on the phone and over at his house and different, a number of times over a number of years, really, last four, three, four years, he would say unbiblical things, things about anger, things about not trusting, and just a lot of different things. And, and I would just throw in pieces of truth. But because he was my 86-year-old grandfather, I couldn't be like... You know, Grap, you might want to think about this. You know, Grap, I don't think what you just said is really true. You know, Grap, that's not really God. When uh, Graham died, the, 90, she, uh, the day she died and we had the funeral... I did the funeral, so I was there, obviously. But I gave him this booklet that says, When a Christian Spouse Dies. And I said, you know, Grap, not now, but sometime I want you to read this. As he was leaving the funeral home, that's when I gave it to her. I've talked to him a few times. He told me he read it. In fact, he was going to give it to my Aunt Lowy, who also lost a spouse. But apparently he kept it. Last night, talk about God's sovereignty. Last night he called me. He said, you know, I read that pamphlet for the third time. My loss was your grandmother's gain. You know what, Johnny? I'm actually happy that she is with the Lord. You don't even know how that... You don't even know how that... Because I, I never thought... I, 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 small faith. I figured die, bitter, angry, die. That's what I kind of figured was going to be the pattern for him. And when he called me, you, I said, Grab, you know, there'll still be struggles. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it is so true. My loss, her gain. I'm happy that Graham 
is with the Lord. And I thought, and, I, and, and it, it wasn't until this morning that I said, what a perfect illustration of confrontation. Because we think of confrontation like going and with the big bony finger, and sometimes it is Nathan with David, but then again, he even told him a parable. But you know what? You plant a seed, let it grow. You plant some more, you listen. You challenge when the truth is not the truth. When, when they're saying something that is wrong and they're going down the wrong path, it's right to say, you know what? I want you to think about this. But there should be gentleness, there should be compassion, there should be love. Why? Because I love God and I love others. In this case, I love you, Grap. And I'm not going to allow you to go down the path that's only going to get you angry, unrighteously, and bitter, even at God. So, I say that because it shows some things. The time, the patience, and quite honestly, I didn't recognize it was happening until last night. Like I said, it wasn't until this morning. I couldn't sleep because I was, so I got up at 5.30, I'm washing some dishes and just kind of, you know, doing my, and I'm like, wow, thank you, Lord, for having Grap call, because this is the other piece. I had just called Grap an hour earlier. He never calls me. I mean, maybe one time in my entire life that I remember him calling me, you know, and he said, Johnny, it was nine o'clock. I'd call him at eight, nine o'clock. Johnny, I got to tell you this because I read this thing and I want to tell you her law or my loss, her gain. I just had to tell you that, that I finally have seen, I'm happy for what happened with Graham. And I was like, wow, just for him to call. Wow. Just that happened that night. You know what? Just make sure that as you seek to confront, you love God, you love others, and, and you love that person enough to say, you know what, and I'll run with you. you don't, it's not a hit and run here. Truth is not a hit and run. Hit and run means this. Oh, I'm going to give you the truth. You better believe it because I'm never coming back. No, truth says, I'll plant the seed and I'll be back to water it. And if this, because that's what patience is, macro, love is patient, macro, thumia, you know, a macro, big, thumia, that's the other word for anger, the positive side, thumio, passion, a lot of passion, a lot of passion for the person, I'll run with you long, because I love you so much, do you love people that much, you love God, I trust you do, let's, let's stand and worship him as we close.